Ready? Yeah. We're live. It'll just take a minute for people to filter in, uh, and then we'll get started in just like 60 seconds or less. Are you in New York today? Yeah, yeah I'm in New York. Mm -hmm. This is definitely now the longest I haven't gotten on a plane since college, by far. Does that feel good? Are you trying to escape the family? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, my funny story is, no, no, if we're going to talk while we wait for like 30 seconds. Is, is my, it, is it my, you escaping the family or is the family escaping you, Rich? Steve, my, my wife had to take the kids back into the city for school. And I said, oh, I'll come with you. This is like two weeks ago. She goes, no, no, no. Why don't you stay at the house and you can have a, a business trip in the house? Because we haven't, we literally haven't been apart for six months. So like, why don't you just stay and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call it a business trip. It was pretty funny. That is funny. Um, okay, so um, first of all, every, I just want to welcome everyone to Lightshed Live. We are really excited. Uh, Brendan Ross and myself are really excited to have Steve Stout, multi-time multi entrepreneur who's built two really exciting businesses in Translation and United Masters. Both deserve us talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I think we really want to start with, and I'm sure they'll bleed together because there's overlap in what you do, Steve, and everything that you do. But maybe just sort of set us set the stage for us in terms of United Masters. How do you define that what United Masters does in terms of fusing tech and data and music? Like, how do you explain it when you're pitching new clients or, 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 or artists? Well, so, I mean, it was three and a half years ago when I essentially, you know, thought of the idea um, that the record companies needed to be disrupted and that the artists should be able to go uh, direct to their fans. Um, the first thing I wanted to do, Rich, my initial thesis was, like everything else in, in digital, um, you accept lower margins for higher frequency and uh, much more targeted to your consumer. And But in the music business, what was un unreal was that an artist could sell 5 million records or whatever, and then like six months later, try to put out another album, and they wouldn't know at all who bought the first 5 million records. There was no understanding of who your consumer was. And I wanted to bring data scientists and everything to merge that, to fix that gap. And over time, I've really got it down to what it is now, which is a opportunity for artists to, dis uh, to distribute their music directly um, through, our, through their phone, a record company in your pocket. We offer a suite of services. The biggest one that's gotten the most traction is um, getting your music partnered and synced with brands. So we have deals with the NBA, uh, video game companies, um, ESPN, we announced recently, and our artists get their music placed in these opportunities um, and they keep 100% of the proceeds. And that's the subscription business around artists has completely changed the game um, for us. Do you think the label is an antiquated institution though, especially indie labels? What do you see as the value proposition of the label and how does your value proposition differ from that of a label? Well, the, la the label is a, it's a usury loan. They pay you, you know, a bunch of money and buy your name and likeness in perpetuity and own your intellectual property, right? For an advance. 
Um, artists should own their intellectual property. I mean, Prince, 20 years ago, uh, 25 years ago, he changed his name to the artist formerly known as Prince to get out of his agreement. He wrote slave on his face. And people thought he was this eccentric person being different. No, he was telling us where the industry needs to go. Years ago, when Pr Prince sold, uh, he had an album release. And if you brought the album, it acted as a ticket. You can bring it to the show. They didn't want to count those albums as sales. Meanwhile, everybody does that bumming now. But they didn't want to count it as sales back then because he was way ahead of his time. So I just think that this has been a long time coming where artists have been fed up with the system. They wanted to be able to retain their name and likeness and their rights, um, keep the majority of the money since they're the one doing the work. Record companies at this point in time, there's not much they can do, uh, Brandon. You know, years ago, they did press vinyl, get the vinyl to record stores, make cassettes. All of those things had to take place. But today, an artist finds an audience before they find a record company. Before, you had to find a record company to find an audience. And it's been moved around, and the value should be moved around as well, and it hasn't been. We were recently talking to a label executive who pointed out, said that nobody besides Chance the Rapper has been, that's a big name artist, has been able to go uh, direct. Can you assess that yeah. view? Well, that, that, that is a very short-sighted, closed-minded. The reason why it's so short-sighted and closed-minded is because they run around and will pay eight and $10 million for an artist before they become successful. So an artist is getting success. It's independent. The label then goes to that artist, gives them a bunch of money in order to make them become part of their system. So how do, would he know or she know, whoever made that asinine statement, know how far that person would have gotten. Chance the Rapper just stayed and wouldn't let a check take him off his game. But the truth of the matter is, the record companies don't do shit for a lot of these artists today. And if they decided not to take the advance or they were not part of a record company, they would still be successful. And they know that. They really know that. So, But, but it's hard to just you know, stop when you, when money is being put in front of you and That's walk true. away from that. That's so true. how does the, how does an up and coming artist deal with that dilemma? Well, you know what? I think that's a dilemma of every, any, any entrepreneur has that dilemma, right? I mean, you could sell your company very early. You read all the stories about what Larry and Sergey could have sold Google for, or what Mark could have sold his company for. I mean, we Zuckerberg, um, that is Evan turned down $3 billion from Facebook, from Snapchat. So, yeah. right. I mean, so it's the entrepreneurs, which artists are have to make that decision very early. Do you believe in yourself? And if you believe in yourself long-term, you wouldn't sign a record deal. If you think you're a one hit wonder or you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to be successful, then you can hedge the bet and take the money. But if you believe in yourself and you're going to be successful, Absolutely not. It does not make any sense. Or at least get independent to a point where you have so much leverage on a record company.
that you just basically have a deal where they're your distributor and they pay you a bunch of money for the right to say they distribute you and you retain all your rights. And, and, and unless you can get a deal like that, which you need tremendous leverage for, um, you don't need a record company. But I'll tell you last thing, Brandon, I know you're a music fan. That the fish, he's a fish fan, just to qualify yeah. that. Like, well, fish, I mean, they're the they're one of the best examples of by the way, the best they, built exa- they built an entire they built an entire business an entire direct to fan. around yeah. their fans. That they're, they're awesome at this, they're the definition of this, right? They make millions of dollars a year. By the way, you should have told that record executive, What about fish? Uh, yeah, I mean, theoretically, they're they're on a major label, but not really. No. They don't make any money off of their recorded music. Zero. So anyhow, the fact of the matter is, um, Fish is a great example, that if you're a younger artist, put yourself in a leveraged position. Use a a company like United Masters as a way to put yourself in a leveraged position to get um, a deal in which you own everything. Because if a market company owns your work, unfortunately, you're done. But record companies know this. They see the writing on the wall. That's why they're all trying to go public right now. They're all trying to get the money off the table because the truth of the matter is on the other side of these valuations is going to be a spiral because the new artists are getting better deals than Eminem ever had. There are artists you never heard of that got a better deal than Eminem ever had. Wait, wait, wait. So, so hold on, I want to stop you there. So y- your contention is right now that labels, without naming anyone specifically, but overall, the labels are overpaying talent to prevent them from going direct, even if the math doesn't make sense. Richard, it is seismic what they're paying, and it doesn't make any sense. They know they're paying artists to, right now is a very, very, and I know you, you guys talk about the media business, Right now is a very sensitive time for the labels because they're public, they're trying to go public, they're getting big valuations, they're getting all of this revenue coming in from Apple and Spotify, they got great margins, and they look fantastic. It's the first, it's the first two-year period where music looks exciting in 15 years. And, and, but what they're not saying is what they have built their business on, which is owning catalog, owning rights, and then licensing those rights to Apple and Spotify and others, they're losing that. They're losing that right. They're losing that grip. They're losing that monopoly because the new artists that are coming up are asking for things that the other artists never got. Okay. And can you give us an example? Can you give us a couple of examples without naming an artist, but just conceptually, what are those types of things that they're holding back that the label normally artists would have are gotten? saying? Artists are saying, you know what? I want to do a three album deal. I'm going to give you a license and I want 70% of the revenue and you get 30. And I'll give you a short license window. Now, that's a deal in which an artist has tremendous leverage. They're going to own, they own their rights the entire time and they're licensing it to a label. Now, what the labels are used to having is they own everything and they pay you a bunch of money so they own everything in its entirety, and then they decide who they license it to, and they have it in perpetuity, so they can do it over time. That's where they make money. You got to understand an Eminem album. 
after you, after two years after the album is released, a year after, there's no more marketing to be, to be done, right? And it just keeps selling and selling and selling. And the record company owns it. And they get all of that revenue coming in over time. The artist is getting the short end of the stick. They're making all this revenue. And it's not fair to the guy who provides the most value to the equation, which is the artist. Those deals are going to be eradicated from the business. And the new artists who are driving streaming revenue right now are waking up and they're saying, you know what? You, don't, you shouldn't own my rights. You don't do enough. Just giving me a check up front does not give you enough leverage to own my rights. I can go to a company like Steve's, United Masters. I can get distribution. I can get an opportunity. And I retain my rights. So when someone like Kanye is going off on how he should own his masters, and I mean, we, we've seen more and more, you know, obviously Taylor went ballistic over her masters. Yeah. Like, is it, I mean, does that actually fundamentally change where in 10 years we're going to have the top artists are going to have full control of their masters versus the label having full control? Well, two things are going to happen over time. What we're seeing is you guys had Daniel Leck on. Mid-tier and the longer tail are getting fatter. So an artist that you don't, you've never heard of, you guys have may never heard of, doesn't mean they're unknown. They're just unknown to you, but they're building an audience that just isn't apparent to you. So the long tail artist that used to be in the old recording business, meaningless, are now creating fans and audience on their own and monetizing that audience. So the mid and long tail are getting fatter. The amount of superstars that dominate the business is getting smaller. Meaning the industry is broadening out from your perspective. Like there's less, it's less top heavy. It's less top heavy. It's less about top 40 now. And it's, it's top 40. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so in a Spotify all, world, what's top yeah, 40? Yeah, in a Spotify world, what's top 40? Radio matters less. Well, now it's top, top of Spotify's list, right? Yeah. yeah, radio matters less and less. And if you, um, if you look at it, if you look at the business, um, you realize that at any given moment, an artist can make a song from Jacksonville, Florida, put it up, and it goes. I mean, who was Little Nas X? It was TikTok and, that found him. And we saw, we saw a lot of that during COVID <laughs> with yes. artists just just being kind of like trapped at home and, and just been putting music up. Yeah, and they're staring at that contract saying, why am I not making any money? Because you can obfuscate all of that stuff because artists go on tour and they, they make money, they do shows, and they go, oh, you know, I'll deal with that later. But now that there's no shows, nothing to stop that or hide that, they're looking at their contracts saying, what do I need these guys for? You know, I, if I own my music, I can put the music out on my own and get a, I get a return um, and get the check in 30 days and get the check. By the way, record company accounting is the worst. It pays every six months. I mean, literally six months. You have to fight to get a better payment schedule. So there's not only is it six months, but there's also a lack of transparency. Um, look, I, I, I've built something. Um, I have great investors and in Dreesen Horowitz, Alphabet, who believe in this idea 
that artists should own their rights, artists should be free, and we are growing tremendously. I'm happy to say that. Um, our brand partners are happy because on one side, artists don't want to deal with labels. On the other side, uh, Richard, brands don't want to deal with labels because when they have to license a song for a commercial or for social media, it's litigious, it takes a long time, it's difficult, and they'd much rather go directly to the artist, to an independent source such as ours, and fulfill their music needs. And that's what we're doing for ESPN, and that's what we're doing for the NBA, that's what we're doing for Take-Two Interactive, the video game company, and we have other great partnerships being formed because not only are we helping the artists, but these brands are saying, well, I'll license their music and, and break them. Remember when you seen the Apple commercial years ago and you seen Feist? Yes. You, you didn't know who Feist was, but it was Apple breaking this brand new artist and it being successful. Every brand has the opportunity to do that. And we have the artist community at United Masters to serve that up for brands. There's a couple of questions from the Q&A in the audience, and we, we want to make sure we, we, we get them in. And both of them actually um, talk to your use of data. The second one, I think, is a little broader, which is, um, can you ask Steve to speak to the United Masters revenue model, and what are actual examples of how he is using data to grow the business? Okay. So... How are we using data to grow the business? We're getting with, because we are able to see who's streaming within our ecosystem, um, we can then predict where this is going. Our goal is to start providing these artists microloans. So if we know that by the end of, in six months, you're going to make, we're looking at the acceleration of your streams that you're going to make, for instance, you know, $97,000. We would then have no problem giving you advance of $50,000, a microloan, in order to help you because it's obvious you're going to earn, you know, based off of the data that we're seeing, you're going to earn uh, $97,000 as an example. Um, the other way we're using data is to inform how we market these artists, how we buy media against them. In certain deals, we have artists in which we spend against them to promote them. Um, data and intelligence helps in, in that way. So, um, you know, data is a very, very important aspect of this, uh, specifically when you use it in service of the artists themselves. Can you talk about where, you're, where you get your data from? What data specifically are you looking at? Yeah, well, we are looking at, um, we ask the artists who join our platform a lot of questions. Um, we get some sense of their, um, what they like to listen to, brands they like to be a part of, um, sport teams. We ask, we ask them a bunch of questions. We use that uh, information as part of a broader offering when we start saying, these are the brands that you should do business with. These are the brands that are looking to do business with you. So we take that intelligence and that's just more using the artist as a panel. Um, other than that, we don't get any PII. We don't intend on getting any PII. That's not uh, the business that we're in. Um, we did launch 
a partnership with Nielsen where our artists are part of a panel that Nielsen is saying, look, we have qualitative and quantitative census data. We have 600,000 artists on the platform that we can utilize as a panel. And we can take those intelligences, the artists and the, and the qualitative research that Nielsen have and take that to brands and, and, and showcase the fact that brands can now get a deeper understanding of culture. They can buy into culture. They can actually get a sense of what um, the tendencies and the, 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 the opportunities that using our artists as influences to buy against these audiences provide. And it's been, we just launched it, uh, we announced it last week, and we already have uh, Disney on as a beta partner, and we're adding others now. So, like, I'll just give you the frame. I want to frame this for you. I walk into a major label, and they show me their dashboards of how amazing the data is. They show me how they can compare you this artist to like these artists and this is the place where this artist is strong using, you know, looking at data that they pull from Spotify and from Apple and all these different places. And then I walk into Spotify and they say they have amazing data. And then I walk into Live Nation or an AEG and they have data. And then I walk into an iHeart and they have data. Like it, everyone says they have data. Like, but we, get data. We, get that, we get that data, Richard, from all of them. So when we put out an artist, we get, Apple's data, Spotify's data, iHeart's data, YouTube's data, and we have a corpus of all of that information in front of us. Now, it's not PII, but it certainly gives you geographic location and where your fans are coming from, regions in which you should be doing X, Y, Z, N, um, frequency of, 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 of opportunity in which you are performing well, so I don't want to say, obviously Apple and Spotify, because they're dealing with the consumers directly, probably have the richest data set. We, because we sit between all of them, get a combination of data that we then distill to very important um, uh, decision. We use it for, to make very careful decisions on how we spend money and how we help promote the artists. And we provide that insight as a dashboard to our artists so they, as entrepreneurs, can run their business against that data set. I think a lot of people listening to this are very interested specifically in Spotify and the data that they provide. Yeah. We, have, we have a question from the audience here that says, how successful has Spotify been in working directly with artists and providing valuable data around listeners and fans? Can they or similar models be disruptive to label economics over time? If so, how? Yeah. And it goes Spotify with a lot of what great. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spotify has great data and Spotify can be disruptive to the record companies over time. The problem that Spotify has, quite frankly, is... They, in, the rec, in the deals they've done with the record companies, the record companies have put in clauses as such that if Spotify were to compete with them, the record companies can terminate and pull their catalog. So the record companies use their catalog as a moat to protect their business. Um, Spotify obviously relies on the record company catalog in order to have, you know, the library of songs that they have at your fingertips. So 
Um, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is if Spotify allows artists, they tried this last year, to upload their music directly to Spotify. That, they could do that, but that artist also wants to be on Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, Apple. So those are, right, and those, they don't have that service. We sit in the middle and distribute to all of them. So, it, you know, um, I guess when you think about Troy Carter, there was a lot of news. I remember when Troy went to Spotify and there was sort of all of this sort of excitement that they were going to create a label um, go head to head, you know, this was the end of the labels. It was all going to be Spotify and Troy leaves. And, you know, I think Troy was helpful in sort of the artist relations over there, but was it sort of recognition that if you're going to replace the labels or try to compete with the labels, it needs to be done on a third party basis, meaning it needs to be a United masters. It can't be Spotify directly. It's not going to be Spotify directly. No, you look, I, I look, Daniel's Daniel's a friend of mine. And like the, Daniel wants to build um, a robust advertising model. Uh, um, they're in the audio business overall. So you see that what they're doing in podcasts, which has been amazing for the category overall. Yeah, um, yeah we're going to get to that for sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think in order to disrupt the labels, it has to be somebody who has no business with the labels. You can't be in business with them, right? What the record companies do, which is very unique, well, maybe it's not unique, but I don't think it's necessarily the right thing, is they will find companies that are in the industry of music, whatever, audio, and they'll invest in those companies. And they really invest in those companies not to help them grow, but to stop them from disrupting them. They literally put their foot inside the company. It's almost like, you know, making Tony Soprano an investor in your restaurant. <laughs> You know, I, I didn't. I didn't expect to get Sopranos into this discussion at all, Steve. But 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 it was a good that you worked that in. One of the questions we got was sort of. Um, I'm going to sort of paraphrase it because you touched on part of it. But you know, you mentioned that the labels are sort of overspending on some of these emerging artists. But I guess the question here is, aren't the labels? You know, the labels basically have all this data now. Like they can see who's hot on a TikTok or they can see who's hot on a YouTube. So aren't they making educated, very well-educated bets when they go out and, you know, in your words, maybe overspend on some of these artists? Or is it just the mechanics of the deal that they're making the mistakes on? They don't have any more data. First of all, the record companies do not have any more data than we have from those providers. TikTok, Instagram, none of them. Zero. So that's number one. Those companies are very fair in their favorite nations, the way they distribute intelligence. Um, what, what they'll do is if they see an independent artist coming through a system like ours, I'll give you an example. We had an artist, NLE Chopper. We found this kid, Memphis, Tennessee, 16 years old. We put out a song called Shot of Flow. In fact, your kids knew about it, Richard. We talked about this at lunch. We did. And the kid blowing up, everything's going well. Warner Brothers, we signed him in January. He just started recording music six months before that, right? We signed him in January when he puts out his first song. By June, Warner Brothers offers this 16-year-old kid $8 million. I the picked the wrong career. Eight, right? The kid <laughs> takes $8 million. I, he took $8 million. You know what happened since then? 
goose eggs. Nothing. <laughs> it's called Nothing. a write-off in the film. They, business. Give, $8 million, <laughs> they give him $8 million. So, but why did they give him $8 million? Because there was a bidding war. Why? Because they think that, you know, based off the success of that song, that somebody did the math to make it look like $8 million was a good investment. Obviously, they overpaid for that. Clearly, they overpaid for that. And I don't blame the artist. You know, he took $8 million. It changed his family's life. But if you're, if you're an investor looking to invest in record companies, and these are the deals that they're making for new, brand new artists, frontline artists, I, this is what I'm trying to say to you. The Sounds problematic, yeah. <laughs> the record companies right now are overpaying and getting less and less rights than they historically got. But the street doesn't necessarily understand that dynamic. That dynamic, they're making less margin, overpaying, and they're going to go public with this. Um, I guess their hopes is that they can monetize, you know, the catalog will grow over time, and, you know, which is the story that they've always ran. The catalog is great. We'll make money off the catalog. The catalog is great. We'll make money on the catalog. But the front-end artists, which are driving a majority of the streams, artists that come into the system within the last 18 months, is very important, are driving 90% of the streams. So when you have these new artists that are driving the streams at this pace, and you're paying them that kind of money, and you're making deals with them that you did not make historically, you get the volume for sure, but and you get the market share for sure. But you got to look at the profitability per artist. You got to look at the deals that are being made. You got to look at the long-term effect of the decisions that are being made today. Can we pivot a little bit to the touring business? Can you just talk about how important uh, the touring business in non-COVID times is um, to, to your business? And does the data you look at um, help you to plan and price tours? Like, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely, definitely helps us. Um, huh, that's a great question. It, there are great new companies that are figuring out the pricing model. Because very similar to gaming, the opportunity is you can get, if you price every ticket at $100, the super fan pays exactly the much as much as yep. a casual fan. And in fact, the and how tickets go on sale, the super fan who knows every word and should be sitting in the front row is sitting in the back and the person who just met you is sitting in the front row and they both paid $100. So that whole thing is being worked out by Live Nation is doing it itself. But then there's other startups who are figuring that out in a great way. Are there specific startups that you want to call out? That um, there's a few of them. Not to put you on the spot. No, no, no. There's a few. There's, well, there's a few of them. There's one. That, that, uh, there's a few of them right now um, that are all getting the first base in building that. Um, they don't have the money that Live Nation has to provide, again, advances. 
you go to an artist and you say, here's, you know, $50 million so I can get your touring rights for the next five years. That's an advantage that no one else has. And with Live Nation, between that advantage and owning Ticketmaster, they have a pretty much a monopoly on venues and they can afford to give artists those types of advances. These new um, startups have to rely on artists that do not have Live Nation contracts that want to figure out ways to maximize their profitability um, from smaller venues and yep. um, being able to get mo more money out of each fan via the technology that they provide. Now, their company's doing that. What we can do is if you're an artist going through, we have a great artist, um, artist Toby Nagawi. And he's put out a song with us every week for the last three years, and he just broke big during the pandemic. Every week, just to be clear? Every week he's put out a song for the last three years. Okay. Every week he put out a new song. And Toby's amazing. And what we can do, because we have all of that intelligence over the three-year period of time, we know exactly where he should be touring. We know exactly the markets in which he has the most opportunity for, you know, selling tickets at a higher price. We can help him gauge market. Um, and, 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 and understanding that is very important and giving it to these artists. They're artists, right? They're not necessarily um, business people. They're, they're focused on their art. So when we give them that information, we want to give it to that information in the most user-friendly format that's very simple and transparent so that they can make decisions based off of that. And I don't want to be, you know, disparaging saying that they're not business people, but they're focused on art every single day, which they should be. Right. And our job as their partner, United Masters, is to give them information as simple and clean with an easy interface right on their phone so they have zero issues understanding it and, and, and can make actions against that intelligence. You talked a lot about the power of artists and their ability to to be in control of their own destiny. How does that relate to the touring business? And do artists want more control over ticketing? And we see, we've seen Ticketmaster start to um, create and utilize tools to give artists, I think, more power. We saw that with Pearl Jam's on sale. Um, I guess it feels like years ago, but <laughs> probably like six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, artists definitely want more. What artists want to do is one of the things that artists negotiate is they get a certain allotment of seats that they can sell to their fans directly. So they may get, you know, 200 tickets that they can sell to their super fans. They usually bundle it with a meet and greet and sell it for $1,000 or whatever they do, right? And there's no shortage of that when you have a your super fan um, engage at that level and it and it's paid and it's one to one like that. What the biggest issue with the concert business with that artists are finding out is that when the world is normal, a lot of people who are fans of artists don't even know that the, the tour is coming to town. Right? They 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 don't have it's not necessarily it's a problem where you don't necessarily have 
your fans haven't gotten contacted so that you know or they know that you're playing at Webster Hall on, on Tuesday night. That needs to be solved. And artists are definitely asking for more information so that they could sell out earlier in, in the cycle and be able to directly market to their super fans so that they don't have an issue with selling tickets. And of course, they're able to get the best pricing as a result of it. Just staying on touring very quickly, how are your clients thinking about touring in kind of the post-COVID world? And what's their willingness to share the risk with, with promoters? Uh, as it, it, yeah, Everyone's scared, right? Right, right yeah, now. Right? Everyone's, uh, yeah. Look, I think you got, you have a bunch of artists who are, um, who've been in the business for a while, who are used to getting big advances to go on tour. Um, and, and Live Nation has done a great job uh, with those artists. And you have younger artists who are looking to capture in smaller venues where Live Nation doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. own the real estate and Ticketmaster doesn't own the ticketing process, where the artists are willing to take risk because they don't have that much risk to lose. They don't have that much downside. And what's amazing about this generation, just pulling back for a second, is that they've become so digitally savvy that they understand how to market themselves better than anybody else. Meaning so, the artists themselves truly yeah, understands digital marketing. The, the, the artists themselves are better marketers than anybody. An artist's social handle is better than any marketing advertising campaign you can buy. You can buy outdoor advertising and all that stuff. Nothing is more viable than an artist's Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter account. Nothing. And the only thing more valuable than that, rather, would be is if that artist had their fans' email address. If that artist um, uh, had that fans' way of contacting directly. And there's a few companies doing that now. Guy Osiri has a company called Community that's doing that, where they're giving out, you know, text a phone number and then they text and they capture your number so they're able to market to you directly. The, the, everyone's trying to figure out how to get closer and closer to the fan and closer and closer to your customer. And we know, as we've seen many businesses in the past, when that happens, the person in the middle gets cut out. And in that case, it's the record company. They're sitting there with the biggest, they're taking the biggest piece of the pie, still, providing the least amount of value, and they're sitting between the artist and the fan, and their job is to make sure they never connect. Because if an artist knew who all their fans was, why would they ever need a record company at all? <laughs> so, you know, I remember sitting next to you on a plane. Uh, I think we were both going out to LA for different conferences, and I remember you basically talking to me about sort of the the power. It was right when Little Nas was taking off and you you were enamored with sort of the the sheer power of TikTok to transform the music industry. Yeah. Uh, I know I, I know you just recently cut a very big deal with Kevin Mayer who was um joined and then left obviously TikTok, but um but I you know, I know you're a Kevin fan. Yeah. Um maybe just walk us through, you know, you seem to figure out the power of TikTok well before anyone else I was talking to. Like you were one of the first people to say like, 
basically, Rich, pay attention. Like there is something yeah. going on here. And like, so w- what was it about TikTok? And then specifically, what is it about TikTok in the music industry that sort yeah. of led you to do what you did recently? Maybe explain the deal, et cetera. I'll do everything, yeah. So Brandon, I was, what I did with Rich, what I figured out was the most effective ways, don't pitch him anything. Don't pitch him, he don't want to be pitched on shit, okay? Make, make him feel like his, his, uh, it's his idea. Yeah. So what I did was, I, would, I do that every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's so called inception. Was, yeah. Plane flight, some more droppings at CES, I, a lunch. I said, look, Rich, I'm not asking <laughs> you to do shit, but listen to me. I'm telling you, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until the Kanye tweets when it all went, but it's fine. <laughs> but, what, what I seen in TikTok very early was that it's where artist discovery was happening. So they have this great line from the bedroom to the billboard. They knew that they could create a song, a song could come through their system, get the stuff discovered, build an audience, and that artist then go get a record deal, go monetize their music through a record company. And you started to see it happen often. Record companies, even before the closure of the pandemic, uh, for, for the most part, um, there's some great talented people inside of record companies, A&R people. Um, but for the most part, they're sitting there trolling Instagram, trolling YouTube, trolling TikTok, looking for artists. They're not going to CBGBs anymore. They're going there, right? And that's because the artists are getting discovered there. So what I did was made a deal with TikTok saying, look, guys, aren't you frustrated or you will soon be frustrated that you're creating this audience for these stars and then they're signing the record companies and ultimately you have to pay the record companies their tremendous license fees to essentially utilize the music of people that got discovered on your platform. Why don't you close the loop on the ecosystem? So when an artist goes to TikTok and they upload that 30-second version of a song with the dance attached to it that, Richard, you know so well. I can renegade. Right? When you... <laughs> the sight to behold. <laughs> when, you put up, when you put up the... The, the, the clip of Renegade, right there, right in proximity, is the United Masters login. And you can actually distribute that song in its full-length version to Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and others. So it's a seamless integration of where an artist can put their music on TikTok and then put their music on all the distribution platforms simultaneously. So not only do they get the promotion of the TikTok, but the monetization of that happens in real time because they can distribute on the spot. That allows TikTok to not only discover, but be a part of the entire ecosystem of streaming for an artist. Now, there's been a lot that's obviously happened with TikTok over the last few months. I don't need to tell you. Um, That's probably the understatement of the decade. But yeah. um, there was a whole, you know, if, if I were to sit down with, you know, Brandon and I sat down with several music labels 
I'm going to say um, 15, 15, 16 months ago, we sat down with music labels and they were all confident that TikTok would transform itself into the next Spotify. Um, I don't sense that anymore. I mean, I know they've played around with it in a couple of markets, but yeah. do, you, do you think TikTok becomes more of a music industry um, company or do you think it just becomes more of this promotional vehicle and distribution vehicle that you're sort of talking yeah. about? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think, look, TikTok is not only, obviously music is one part of TikTok, right? They have a creative, they have a creative market of music and, and, and short filmmakers and home cooking and DIY and uh, other things. Um, so music is a big part of it, but it's not the entire story of TikTok. Record companies, I'm sure, wanted to be another Spotify because they make a lot of money from Spotify. They make a lot of money from Apple. They want as many of that in the market as possible competing. But, but where However, I'm going with, yeah, go ahead, sorry. However, TikTok is playing a very important role in creating the stars of tomorrow. And TikTok and United Masters closed the loop on that deal because TikTok is finding them at the top of the funnel. We're distributing them to all of the platforms. And as that cycle continues, you'll start to see these artists rise and they'll start making money way before a record company can find them. So is, it, is there an early example of that that you can already point to? I know the deal's recent, but is there the anyone who's started? Not, the deal's recent and um, we'll be, uh, have, it'll be live in November. Um, so there's no recent ex- example of it. We've had artists that we've signed through TikTok before, but of course, it's an artist uploading a song to TikTok, then they're going out, then they go into United Masters and uploading the full song. So we just made it seamless uh, for the user. Um, and we made it beneficial, obviously, for us, because the early we are in discovery gives us an advantage of getting more artists going through our system. Just like the labels, I assume you want more music distribution companies. So Spotify's, Apple's, Amazon's, like the more companies that are fully engaged in the, in the business of music, I assume is good for United Masters, more places for you to get data, more places for you to distribute artists. When I think about the landscape though, I've sort of been surprised that, you know, Apple certainly hasn't failed at Apple Music, but it certainly hasn't become the industry juggernaut um, Amazon Music, I don't hear a heck of a lot about just from, you know, out there just talking to people. You don't hear a lot of teenagers talking about I'm on Apple Music. Um, obviously, YouTube Music, I think, is on a little bit better overseas than it has domestically. But are you surprised that it seems like it's increasingly, you know, it seems like Spotify is definitely, you know, I don't want to say reaching escape velocity, but probably isn't far from it. It feels like, is, is that fair or unfair when you look at the, the landscape? No, well, well. The one thing I'll tell you about the landscape is I think the record companies are making a mistake. They charge so much for their music to, to spot to the DSPs, Apple, Spotify, Amazon. They charge so much that it's making it harder for Spotify and Apple to continue to invest in music because they're not, the, the profit margins aren't there for them. So, for Apple, yeah, they could sell hardware. You know, for Spotify, you know, maybe they can build a big advertising business on the back of the amount of streams. But Daniel didn't go into podcasts for no reason. 
Daniel went into podcasts because there's much better margins. And the record companies should watch that because you don't want Apple being not incentivized to actually build and invest in music. You don't want Daniel saying, wait a minute, Joe Rogan's much better for us than Taylor Swift, right? Because once that becomes the way his attention goes, which it has, you know, then the music business will suffer because those platforms were built on the fact that these guys kept investing in them, making discovery better, advertising them, making them available to more people. And you don't want that ever to stop. Um, so I answered a few questions there. Yeah. But, um, the, the fact of the matter is that they need to be incentivized to continue to grow and continue to build. And right now with the current pricing that the record companies provide, um, the, 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 they're not allowing that. Now, if the record companies were charging what they're charging and more was getting to the artists, I'm sure that would be fine. But they're charging what they're charging, the DSPs, and the majority of the money is not going to the artists. So, like, they need to be careful, if I were them, on how I keep my partners incentivized to continue to believe and invest in what we're doing, if I owned a record company. You brought up podcasting, which I guess you can't have an audio conversation in 2020 with, without talking about it. Um, how important is the podcast business to what you do? And is there a way to bridge music with podcasting? Have you looked at business models like Osiris and Audio Up and, and some of these other companies that are trying to marry the two worlds? Is this a podcast? <laughs> um, it could you know, it, be, it, I guess, it, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, I guess we are turning. You know, we're live for the moment. It, will it turn into a podcast? It probably will over time. Uh, a, a private podcast, but um, <laughs> it's not by definition a podcast. Okay, because the definition <laughs> has definitely got blurred to me. I don't. Uh, I know. Every Zoom call, I think, is a podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we the, do uh, have a podcast, though. We we yeah, we do have which, a podcast. Which we'll use this opportunity to plug. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm plugging the fact that I currently don't have a podcast. But it's like it's like starting a garage band is like starting a podcast. It's like the 2020 thing to do. So, um, what we're finding is that since the pandemic, a lot of artists have all, a lot of people have all become Oprah Winfrey's in their own right. Everybody's doing Instagram Live, talking to others, and. Um, you know, that's been the way uh, a lot of artists have been able to express themselves um, in, 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 in talking and uh, giving up of themselves. And the podcasts have become a legitimate revenue opportunity um, uh, for artists. And I am not sure yet, to be honest with you, about marrying those two from our side of the business. I'm thinking about it, um, whereas I would like our, you know, 600,000 and growing uh, artist community to be able to, at any given moment, through our platform to create a podcast, to further monetize their audience. So the same way we want them to sell, this is a United Masters hoodie, by the way, uh, the same way we want them to be able to sell merch. If you right? send me one, I'll start wearing it on my podcast. <laughs> I will. I will. So there you go. I promise. I will. Um, 
Uh, you're an extra small. <laughs> wow. Whatever wow. he is, it's a, it's a size smaller than me. Okay. <laughs> he used to be the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> that the, was pre-COVID. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is, no, but yes, you got this, the, the hoodies coming. But the truth of the matter is you want to be able, well, United Masters, we're designed to build a record company in your pocket. So clearly we talked about the distribution. Now we want to say, oh, I want to be able to buy, I want to sell um, hoodies. Toby wants to sell hoodies. He wants to go to his app, look at how much money he made this month, and then he wants to sell hoodies in one click. That is a service we're going to provide. I talked about microfinancing. That is a, uh, uh, um, that's on the roadmap. That's a service we provide. Podcast is another one of those things where an artist may be, build an audience and then decide they want to use podcasting as a way to monetize um, that audience. That opportunity is on the table. I have not, um, I've not, I've not uh, moved forward with it yet, but it's certainly certain, something certainly I'm considering doing be, because I am hearing from our artist community that podcast is the next wave. I mean, for so, them to earn money. I just want to come back to you because we have a question in the, the, the chat that came up and it said, um, it's basically trying to understand United Masters versus the labels. And it says, can you ask Steve again how United Masters makes their money? I know he said the loan on the 97000 they give oh. 50000 But how exactly do they make their money? And the question is, I'm trying to understand the artist compensation difference in the value chain for what Steve is doing versus okay, kind of the rest of the industry. Yeah. So there's two, there's two big differentiating factors here. One is... The artists, when they go through United Masters, have two ways of um, doing business with us. One is where it's 90-10. They get 90%, we get 10%. It's a self-serve platform. They distribute music to us. Money comes in. They get 90, we get 10. There's another more subscription-based model where an artist pays us 5 bucks a month, so $60 a year, and they keep 100% of the money. So it is 90-10 or 100% of the money, okay? So that's one side of it. That's just pure economics. But the other side of it that's extremely valuable, which Taylor Swift is talking about and Kanye West is talking about, is master ownership. When you do business with United Masters, we do not own your copyrights, IP, name, likeness, nothing, right? So you can- You, the artist, retain it all. You can do business with us and the artist retains it all. That's the biggest difference is the economic split is one side of it, but ownership is extremely uh, an important aspect of it. I want to move on to um, the translation and the marketing side a little bit. Um, and something specific to the current times. You've been a thought leader in marketing to multicultural audiences. How, how should marketers be addressing diversity now? And how has that changed in this current iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement? Wow. Um, I know it's a big one. Heavy. Yeah, it's, it's a big one and it's, you know, I get really excited when I speak about the record business um, because there's so much growth and disruption 
this thing is really sad to me on the other side because you would think that you didn't need what took place with George Floyd for people to wake up to what's taking place, right? You didn't, you shouldn't have needed Black Lives Matter, the second wave of it, right? In order to um, create change. But unfortunately, you have. Media companies, advertising industry is an industry I can speak to. Um, I know it well. And the only thing more systemic in those businesses than racism is nepotism. They are very much insular in who they hire and why they hire and how they promote. Um, so hopefully the efforts that I'm taking, I've been very outspoken about the media companies. The same way that you hold your service providers um, to a binary outcome uh, in order, you know, deliver this, these are your deliverables. If you don't deliver this, you fail the agreement. That those same service providers should also be held to a standard of diversity. Not be, and not only the moral aspect of it, the moral aspect of it is important. Obviously, you don't want to be with partners who don't have, you know, black people or brown people or women or, you know, you don't want to have that. Uh, for the most part. Oh, well, one shouldn't. That's the moral side of it. But the business side of it is, it, it's good for business. These are great ideas, great talented people. You know, you, you, you want as much diversity in your company because it helps with, make better work and better outcomes. So the, the moral aspect of it is obviously a terrible thing. But but if I'm a, but as a business person, you can't be giving me the best work if you don't have diversity. That's impossible. And I want advertisers to hold their agencies responsible to be diverse. I want media buying companies to be held responsible for being diverse. I want holding companies and and, and, and to the same thing, and you can't just like hire a chief diversity officer and then say, we solved it. I mean, the chief diversity officer needs power. I interviewed 25 chief diversity officers and like four of them had regular meetings with the CEO, regular. You know, you can't just put a chief diversity in place, officer in place and then say, we checked the box. Right. You got to give them power to make a difference. And, um, you know, hopefully coming out of 2020 and this election that's coming upon us and everything that took place, that the one thing we, we op I'm optimistic that we can come out of this better as a country, better as businesses, um, by not going backwards and taking everything we learned this year and applying it to be better and empathetic towards one another. Can't disagree with that. <laughs> can you can you talk a little bit about the deal you did with Disney and what you helped to accomplish there? You Brandon, you got like gaming headphone on. That's like a 
I, mean, I got the same. I got the same. This is this is my <laughs> office headset. Uh, I don't know if you're playing Fortnite or interview. <laughs> Um, because when you start typing, it also looks like you're playing a game. <laughs> um, so with Disney, what we did was Disney's been a great partner of ours. Uh, uh, Rita Ferrara on the advertising side specifically, just so everyone just so everyone understands listening. Yeah. Disney ad sales, yeah. And you know, Disney they, they they're out. Um, they have massive scale. Um, and the idea was, how do we go to brands and offer them a better solution? So you take Disney's scale and our cultural insights, and you put those two things together, and we make creative for Disney. So, like, we work with Disney and their in-house agency. We go to brands and we give them custom solutions on a media platform that Disney has. So one of those platforms is ESPN. When they did uh, the, uh, the Last Dance with the Michael Jordan documentary, we did a collaboration and we did the State Farm commercials. I don't know if you've seen it, when Kenny Maine could predict the future. Um, yep. Those commercials we did specific to ESPN, specific to our Disney partnership. So it wasn't like a, an ad that's running on network television anywhere else. It was specific to Disney. We are taking that... That's that's a version of that idea. You're really fusing content and marketing advertising yeah. all into one. All in one and, and offering it exclusively. Uh, Disney's offering it exclusively to their clients. Um, so it's a full-time creative team, full-time dedicated staff. It's our creativity and cultural insight and diverse um, creative forces working with Disney to provide solutions for their brand partners in ad sales. When you think about maybe just as a way to wrap this up, because um, this has been phenomenal. I could talk to you for hours, but I could talk to you for hours. I love uh, this, man. I'm happy to be on the show. Rich, <laughs> what you're doing. When you told me you were building your company, I was so proud of you. Thank you. Um, uh, I think it's dope what you're doing. I well, think you, you blazed a trail in building, leaving a big company and, and building multiple companies, Steve. So, um, yeah. Uh, you know, like I think of everyone, every, everyone's kids looked up to you in terms of what you can do and what you can achieve and in terms of um, influence and, and helping people um, learn in this environment. You've been amazing. But when I think about the platforms, like I just want to kind of end this to sort of maybe a little bit of a lightning round. Okay. Um, as we think about, we obviously know what you think of TikTok. You've been yeah. a huge bull. And, but like, let's just talk about the other ones like Facebook and Instagram. Do they matter anymore to you? Um, Instagram matters tremendously. Um, Facebook, I think, is aging out. I speak to young people. You know, we have 600,000 artists. You can log in with Facebook. 20 of them did. They, they're just not using Facebook as an authenticator anymore. So I think Facebook um, is obviously going it's, to, its global dominance is real, um, but it is certainly aging out it's a younger generation is not using facebook proper they're using whatsapp and instagram but not you know facebook as we know it the initial facebook app Blue, yeah. where does youtube fit in today uh youtube is youtube is going nowhere youtube is the <laughs> one of the greatest <laughs> business ideas of all time if not the greatest top 10 in my opinion um 
YouTube has been amazing. And, and look, Susan has built a great team. Robert Kinsel, Leo Cohen. Um, that entire team is fantastic. So every time there's, they're paying attention, they're reading the data and focusing on every single emerging subculture, they're there with a solution. Whether it be gaming, music, DIY, home cooking, hair, makeup, beauty, they are there with a solution and they put great talented teams against it, that vertical. So there's nothing but upswing, further growth for YouTube. Now, do I think that YouTube can charge people subscription products? That still, I don't believe. But can YouTube be the greatest ad-supported video product of all time with, the great man- with a great management team that they have? Absolutely. And then Twitter? Um, I don't know. You want to write them off, and then you, you bring them back. I mean, Jack has done a great job. Um, you know, (laughs) look, those companies, Twitter being one of them, you know, they they stood for, they allowed people to express themselves very freely. And that was a big part of their, who they are. And now they're playing this game now where you can't say certain things. And, you know, this whole idea of freedom has been redefined. Um, and they're redefining it right before our very eyes. You've seen those guys, Rich. You know their pitch that people should be able to express themselves and be transparent and blah, 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 blah. And then five years later, it's like, nope, 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 nope. Censor, censor, censor. Um, I get it. I understand it. Um, but I'm not sure. They got to develop a new product fast. You know, I think they need to develop new products quickly. I think the product that we all know it as has a purpose, but I'm not sure that purpose is um, in its current format. It needs to be modified, I believe. So it sounds like for you, really, TikTok and Instagram are the dominant platforms that you and your talent and and from a marketing standpoint, by far the two most important platforms to you. Uh, yeah, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think so. Though, I mean, those for music specifically. Yeah. If, if you were to ask a gamer, uh, oh, Twitch, Twitch. Yeah. No, we didn't talk but about no, Twitch. No, the whole time out. I'm not letting it go end like this. Twitch has been amazing for music. Twitch, get Sarah Clemens on here. Twitch has been amazing for music, gangbusters for music. And now with them figuring that they they announced that they're going live streaming now so that you can go Amazon Music and Twitch are working as one. Twitch is a very, very fast riser in helping change the dynamic in the music community. The other thing that's becoming very important, it's not popular to say it, but only fans. <laughs> I, I, they generate a lot of free cash flow. Okay. <laughs> only fans is taking the best of Instagram and allowing you to monetize it in real time. And Richard, you're a, you're a great historian of media and, and, and monetization. You know 
I know what leads. I know what leads. The porn industry leads. The porn Uh, sex leads. When they figured out, porn figured out uh, banner advertising. They figured out e-commerce early. Those guys are resourceful and great at figuring out the internet and where it's going to go next. OnlyFans has made a lot of people a lot of money during the pandemic. And I know it's shunned because it's sexually driven. However, I am telling you the idea of I'm an artist and I have an audience and I want to monetize that audience one-to-one, that's where the industry is going. I don't care if it's the music industry, the film industry, the art, visual art business. People want to move the middlemen out and out the picture. I'm a facilitator, a platform facilitator. I am not the middleman. But if you are a middleman stuck between an art, between a consumer and the artist on the other side or the artist on the other side, be aware that every single day that somebody's trying to cut at that because they don't understand why you're getting paid any margin at all. Okay, I think last but not least, we have you on. A lot of people in the audience are Knicks fans. Jim Dolan has his song, Fix the Knicks, relates to the music topic. What's it going to take to fix the Knicks? Look, I am... Um, we all want the Knicks to be great. That's yeah, what we all want. Well, the Knicks, the Knicks are going to be great. Um, the Knicks are going to be great. They have a great, you know, the, the new, new head coach is awesome. Um, uh, Leon Rose is fantastic. Uh, Jim has been very supportive of investing and putting the best, um, you know, executives in position to win. Um, we're handling the marketing now. Um, and I do believe that there's nothing but great things ahead. I, I, I wanted this opportunity because the Knicks to me are one of the greatest franchises in the world. You know, when you think of the Yankees and Manchester United, um, the Dallas Cowboys, and you know, the New York Knicks. And there's nothing but opportunity. And, you know, I am very, I'm very bullish on, on Jim because he puts people in position to do great things. And I do believe we have the great, a great coach, management team. Marketing is going to be fantastic. Um, and, and I expect nothing but excitement when we get back to the garden. Can you share a little bit about what your marketing kind of vision is quickly since you're in charge of that? No, I can't. No, or no. <laughs> but we'll see. But the point enough. is, we're, we're, we're going to see some real... Madison, isn't that Madison Square Garden behind you? Uh, it yeah. is. Yeah. Strategically placed there, there you for go. this question. <laughs> so, so you got the Knicks strategically placed on the bottom and you got music strategically placed behind Richard. Yeah. All right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Steve, thank you for doing this. It was great to chat, and uh, we look forward to seeing what you continue to build. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye.